Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you for your very warm uh, welcome, and uh, it's a real privilege to be with you. Can I bring to you the greetings of the church in Bedford, where I serve, but also of uh, the FIC too. Okay, it's three minutes past eight. How many of you disappointed? Katy Perry, Lionel Richie, take that. Well, let me tell you a man who is very disappointed. I talked to him this morning, one of our church leaders. Uh, we were just talking about the concert, and he said, I thought I got tickets. I, I had an email that said, you've got tickets. you just got to log on. And I logged on. And then I found that I was 2,432nd in the waiting list. I haven't got tickets after all. I only just got through to the waiting list. How disappointing can that be? How disappointing can life be? Even yesterday. I don't, I'm, I'm surprised most people haven't got square eyes because I watched more telly yesterday than I've watched for years. Started off early in the morning uh, watching the troops arrive on the train. And uh, it, I think I, I went to sleep in the last event, which was a, a, a coronation praise prom concert from the Royal Albert Hall. I don't know what time that finished because I say I went to sleep. But I, it was almost wall-to-wall television yesterday. But it was, at times, there were was, there was some major disappointments, weren't there? If you were Charles, there were some very big disappointments, weren't there? Thought about it. Would you rather have your mother or that thing sitting on your head? I think I'd rather have my mum. That must have been hard. The only reason why that crown is on his head is because he's lost his mum. I think most of us would trade anything on our heads for our mums, wouldn't we? And what about the son, four or five rows back? That must have been for a dad. Whatever else is going on, all the pomp and the circumstance... If your son is four or five rows back when he should be on the front row, something's heartbreaking, isn't it? You may be crowned king. You may have had hundreds of millions of people rejoicing. I don't know. But as a dad, that must have been disappointing. What about you? What about you? How's it going just at the moment? Is it disappointing? Is it disappointing so far, or is it going to be disappointing going on into the future? Well, this passage is written to Christians who were beginning to take their eyes off Jesus and look all around, and life's disappointments were hitting them hard, and the temptation was then to give up. Give up on this Christian race. He talks about this race that's marked out Before us, chapter 12, verse 1, a race. It's a long race. Uh, Tomorrow morning, uh, God willing, off to Keswick. Um, uh, Jenny and I are are, uh, taking part in an old person's conference. I have been given the cheerful subject of death. So that's Thursday morning. Uh, The the Grim Reaper and Ray Evans meet somewhere along that line. But... uh, I'm going to be talking to Christians who realize that it's a long race. And in fact, Keswick is only halfway, my friend Dennis tells me, between Land's End and John O'Groats. He's done it three or four times. And he said, you know, Ray, when you get that far into the English Lake District, you think it can't be far now, and then you realize that Penrith is only halfway. I don't, I don't know where you are in your Christian race Maybe you are towards the end. Maybe you're only just in Cornwall, <laughs> as it were. But it's a long race, and these disappointments can come and 
really knock you sideways. So we're going to take some of this. We can't deal all that it says, but we're going to look at some of it to just help us keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I want to spend most time at the beginning here, and I'm going to rush a little bit towards the end, but at the opening section here, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, whether you feel a hero or a failure in your faith at the moment, whether you feel a hero or a failure. Because if you read this superficially, you can very easily misread this text, especially in our context in the 21st century. Because people read this text and thinking, okay, here's some heroes. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I've got time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophet. I've already told you about Abraham and Moses and Joseph. I mean, incredible people of faith. And look what they did. Look at these things. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. Gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. Wow. The heroes of the faith. Be like them. That's the kind of, we kind of feel that that's what it's leading up to. Be like the heroes of faith. But don't be like those failures of faith. I mean, look at them. They were put to death by stoning, verse 37. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. If you haven't got faith, that could be what you end up like. So, don't be a failure of faith. Be a hero of faith. And if you've only got enough faith, oh, well, look what will happen. And if you haven't, look what will happen. Now, that is the context in which we speak today. People think of faith as this thing you've got. And if you've got it, wow, you can walk on water. You know, you will will have a a gilded life. Nothing difficult is going to happen in your life if you've only got enough faith. There's even a kind of phrase for it. We call it the, the, the gospel of health and wealth. Or another phrase is we call name it and claim it. You know, you name what you want and you just believe. And if you've got enough faith, God will give it you. Now, you may not have, you may not hold to that yourself, but so many people around the globe, that's what they think faith is, is this kind of mysterious thing. And if you've just got enough of it, everything will be great. And here it is. Look, it went great. And then look at these others that wasn't so great. Now, that's a complete misread of the text. The text does not say there are heroes and failures of the faith. It says there are the heroes of faith. Here are the people who have trusted God whatever. They've trusted God whatever. And to thwart God's great enemy Satan, it says God cannot. God's children all through the centuries have shown that God can. He can shut the mouths of lions. He can heal. He can deliver. He can, and he does, and he has. But sometimes he does not. And people still trust him. And that is as much a triumph as when he does. For Satan's other great attack, God's great enemy, the evil one, is to say, they won't trust you if, they won't trust you if, if you let their child get hurt at school, if they get made redundant in their mid-50s, if they get told they've got a terminal cancer, they won't trust you. They only trust you because you make their life nice. 
Whereas this list says to us, there are people who trusted God and God did most amazing things. And there are people who trusted God even when he did not. So as the author's writing this passage, he does not have a great paragraph break. He almost doesn't change the tone at all. He doesn't even take a breath. Notice verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured. There was, there's no kind of stop now. There's the good list. Now here's the warning list. It's the same list. It's such a strange thing, unless you know what the author is doing. Now, if you'd like to read more on this, there's a fantastic little book called Affliction by one of the greatest Christian writers of the last century, a lady called Edith Schaefer. You can get it online. And she just explains so brilliantly how God has got two books, as it were. The books of people who trust him and he did the most marvelous things, and the book of the people who trusted him when he did not. And they're all just testimony that you can trust God as these people did. So the author is not saying, imitate their faith and don't do theirs. He said, no, trust God. And what it means is we've got to recognize that some of these things might happen to us in our lives. If we think that faith will just deliver us from anything and everything and life will be great, you are setting yourself up for a fail. You're setting yourself up. You've got, you've got a false expectation. You're, you're going to you're going to be utterly disappointed. Even knowing this, emotionally, it's still difficult. But if you don't know what God is doing, he's saying, trust me. Trust me. And it may be that you see some marvelous, absolutely wonderful answers to prayer. But sometimes his answer is no or not yet, and you still trust him. You turn back in your Bibles, you, we heard of the, uh, the lions having their mouths shut up. But in the same book, the book of Daniel, chapter 3, just turn with it if you have a Bible with you. You see a wonderful example of this kind of thing in action. Daniel, chapter 3, there are three friends called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in one sense, it's the kind of thing that happened yesterday. I mean, there's the pomp and circumstance of the Babylonian Empire. And as you read it, it's almost comical. You get this repetition of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. And when you hear all that, you bow down and worship this idol. And Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego would not. And the king gets very angry. If you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And this is what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will if he wants to. But if he does not, we want you to know this, we're still going to trust him. See that? They know that God can, but they don't know if God will. 
He can, but we don't know if he will. If he wants to, if it's his will, he will. He's able to, but he's not told us whether he's going to or not. So we're going to trust him whatever. Nebuchadnezzar throws them in. And God does deliver them. But you see where they're standing, they don't know the outcome of the particular heartache, threat, problem they're facing. He can, but we don't know if he wills. And that's where we stand as well. He can, but we don't know if he will. I don't know if you've been made redundant, whether he will give you another job. I don't know. I don't know if someone you love very much who's in hospital, their sickness is going to be terminal. I don't know. You don't know. He can, but whether he will or not, that's between, in one sense, that's his secret will. The revealed things belong to us. The secret things belong to God, says Deuteronomy, the author of Deuteronomy. But we will trust him anyway. And you see, that is an absolute triumph of faith. We tend to think of the triumphs as the things that you can see. and Oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. But you see, you have to ask yourself, who's the audience? Who's watching? And we are the actors on the stage. The audience is the unseen world of angels and demons. We get a little glimpse of that in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 is that setup of Satan accusing one of God's children of only trusting God because life's easy. And God says, all right then, you can test him. To prove that he trusts me because he trusts me. Because he knows I love him. He will trust me even if things go really badly. And what we see is behind the seen world is this unseen world of angels and demons. And they are the watchers. We're not watching, but they are. And even as Job comes to that place where everything seems to go terrifyingly wrong, he says, even though he slay me, I will still hope in him. Even if it looks as if God is putting me to death, I trust in him. And you know what happened at that moment? The angels were amazed and the demons were gnashing their teeth. Now Job is one of the few books in the Bible where the curtains open to the unseen world. And we see what's really going on. And what happened to Job is happening to you. The ones watching, well they might rejoice if you trust God or they might... Rage if you trust God, even through the heartaches. You could be an old folk, a person in an old folk's home. You say, well, nobody knows how hard I'm finding it. I'm not able even to get to church anymore. I can only get every now and then a, you know, a podcast or a CD. I, I, who, who knows? But the angels see that you're trusting God even as dementia takes hold. You may be having a tough time at work just at the moment. You say, well, nobody in my church really understands. But you see, the angels see, how do the demons? 
And as you trust God when it seems at times very unfair, people are being extremely unkind and it's unjust, but you're still trusting God, the angels say, look at that. That that child of God is trusting God, even though there is no easy deliverance, even though they haven't had a 35% pay rise, even though, even though, So what this author is saying to us here in Hebrews 11 is saying to these Christians in their race, God can, and he does, but if he does not, trust him as they did. They trusted him even when they were flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two. They were trusting God. They were treated abysmally the world wasn't worthy but a heavenly father was watching and the angels were rejoicing and the demons were raging and what the author is saying you are in that same race and that is what's going on every day of your life the audience is unseen It may marvel if you trust God. It will rage if you do. So trust him by fixing your eyes on Jesus and not giving in to the sense of disappointment and failure and heartache that otherwise might happen as the race goes on. Second thing, you've got to keep fixing your eyes on Jesus however long the race is. The record for um, running between Land's End and John O'Groats is nine days, 14 hours. I thought it was pretty good. Till I came across a guy called Ricardo Atad. I don't know if any of you like running. 5K maybe, you know, fun run on a Saturday morning, one or two of you. Any of you marathon runners? Any of you done a marathon? One or two. How many marathons have you done? One of my mates, Mike, he's done 100K his furthest race. I said, Mike, have you met Ricardo Atad? He has run consecutive marathons every day for 607 days. 607 marathons. I thought Eddie Izzard did pretty well doing 30. But he'd done 607. He'd already done a stint earlier in his life of 500 consecutive marathons. He wanted to get to 1,000. Wow. That's something, isn't it? But you see, in one sense, every day of your life is like a, a, another lap, another part of a long marathon, isn't it? It's quite impressive. But then he stopped. But you've not stopped if you're a Christian. You're still going. And you don't know how much longer you've got to go. The author tells us all these great people of faith, they were commended for their faith. Yes, all of them. But none of them received what was promised. None of them arrived. There's none of that, we've got there in the end. They didn't. (laughs) Basically, they didn't. You think all those great people... You know, your Bibles, Abraham and Moses and Joseph, and on and on it goes, the great people of faith. They, they didn't arrive. They still had to keep going, waiting. 
for what they wanted to arrive, and he hadn't. He hadn't come. That's why John the Baptist was the greatest, because he was closest to the one coming. But they still didn't get what they wanted. They had to keep running, even though they never got it in this life. In so many ways, it's a lot easier for us to keep going, because we've seen him come. He's been. We know there's an empty tomb. But we still haven't got all that he's come to give. So in a way, we are unlike them. It is in many ways a lot easier for you than it was to be in the Old Testament. So much easier in one way because we've seen him come. But we've still got to run like they ran because it's not, it's already, but not yet. We've not yet got all that we long for. We've we've got the forgiveness of our sins, but we've not yet seen a creation changed and our bodies transformed and we've not yet seen evil thrown out so we've got to kind of run a long race therefore you've got to not so much pace yourself but you've got to keep running the race right to the end and the finishing line may not seemingly be in sight unless you fix your eyes on Jesus that brings us to the final little section, verse 12. Uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. We're running this race, and we've got to throw off everything that hinders. Now, I still try and play sport. Uh, I, I should have brought one along, actually. Um, you would think it's a walking stick. From the, if you look at my team, it's actually a hockey stick. We don't hold it that way up. We hold it proper way up. Uh, as we walk onto the pitch... Uh, often the, the, the opposition laugh because I'm the youth policy at age 66 and we're playing kind of teams of men in their 20s uh, and, and they look at, look at, that, look at them. They kind of, you're like, we're going to absolutely stuff them. But then the team strips off. It throws off everything that hinders, all the rub around the knees and, and, we, and we, we play a good game and we actually turned up fourth in the league and we've not been relegated, so it isn't too bad. But you see, at my age, you can't afford anything that hinders. You know, if we're going to compete, we've got to be, well, we, 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 it's no good being, you know, our shoelaces tied the wrong way around and all the rest of it. You've got to throw off everything that hinders. And particularly the sin that so easily entangles. Some of you right now, the heartache, the disappointment of following Jesus is because there are things in your life that you know Jesus doesn't want. And and you're finding it hard to look at him with that entanglement. And it may be you've got to let it go. It's something you're thinking or something you're saying regularly or something you're doing that is just dragging you down. You can't afford that, as it were, to run the race. You need to just throw off the stuff that easily entangles. And you've got to keep going. I know about you, uh, when I was a youth, uh, did you still do cross-country at school? It's like cross-country stroke torture chamber. It felt like that to me. Uh, we, were, we were out in the Fenland of Cambridgeshire, a little town called Ramsey. 
And um, the, the, the funny thing about that was when they set the boys out as a, off running, there were no, there were no, the, the, it's flat as a pancake, okay? The, the Fenland of Cambridge is flat as a pancake. There are no, there are no markers. Like there's a hill, we go in the right direction, or a church spire. It's just flat as, it's featureless. Because it was featureless, we got lost in Warboy's brickyard, like seven miles from the school. We've got to not run aimlessly like that. We don't know what life is going to bring in this land for Christians, do we? It doesn't take much for all of a sudden Christianity to be under the cosh of some legal restriction on the way we share the faith to children, to our own children. Who knows? We don't know what new obstacles are going to be in the way. In the cross-country race, even if you did follow the right course, eventually there was a river. That was always the sort of the worst obstacle, the river. And at certain times of the year, the river was deep. And you know what cross-country is like? When you, the first person goes over, the other bank is okay. But when 300 boys have gone over, it's just slithery, isn't it? I don't know what obstacles are going to be in your way. I don't know, nor do you. But if we're going to get through, we've got to fix our eyes and keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because then whatever the obstacle, we're going to keep going. And the obstacle won't take our eyes off the prize for which we're running. And he, con- and he concludes with this, doesn't he? Consider him. It's not just fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Think about him. Get motivated by him. Let him be the one who causes you to run well. Puts a new spring in your step. And you notice the thing that you need to consider about him? Well, he tells us in verse 2, doesn't he? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Here's the thing. Whatever obstacle is on your route, however long you've got to run, however potentially heartbreaking and disappointing life might be for you, you don't have to go by the cross of Calvary. The thing that would turn your race into a curse and a thing of despair and hopelessness, as it is for many people around us, they are running their lives, they're running a race, but it's going to end up in disaster. And along the way, it will be heartache, heartache, heartache. And then one day, the author's just said it, one day we will die and meet God as our judge. But if you've got your eyes on Jesus... There is no cross of Calvary. He's taken the curse of the evil that we've all been involved in. And he had to set his eyes on that cross. 
He had to be determined to go that, to that cross. That was what was looming over his whole being. Even when he was first born, his mum was told, He's, it's, it's going to break your heart what's going to happen to your son. My, what a heartbreak it was to see him nailed to the cross and hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, he did it for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? To get to heaven, back again to heaven? No, he didn't need to leave heaven. The joy was that you would be with him in heaven. That was the joy. And if he had to go via the cross to get you to be with him in heaven, he'd do it. And he did. So your heart can beat faster. Because you don't have to go to the cross where evil was cursed in him, not in you. When you come to the end of your race, you're going to be with him forever. So you can run this race and it's not hopeless and aimless and, and utterly, in the end, disappointing. I'm going to tell the folks on uh, Thursday, God willing, the story of the girl that was dying. And she was gradually disappearing, as it were. They were she was gradually, as it were, they were losing her. And, and, and then she died. And, and the parents were heartbroken. And somebody said to them, I understand your pain and sorrow. But think of it like this. As a great ship leaves port, and everybody's waving, bye-bye, bye-bye, and then gradually it goes. And you see less and less of the ship, and eventually even the mast disappears, and you go, it's gone. On the other side, what are they saying? Here she comes. Here she comes. And heaven welcomed your daughter. As she took her last breath and you felt, she's gone. Heaven was saying, she's come. She's come. And who is saying that the most? The Savior who died for you. Home at last. I've been waiting to meet you. That's why you can fix your eyes on Jesus in this life. Because in this life, you're going to meet him one day. And you will never, ever be disappointed in that meeting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can be so easily seduced in looking at our circumstances and judging you. Or perhaps even worse, looking inside of ourselves and seeking to find all the joy and the purpose and meaning and fun and happiness that we desire. How we thank you that you tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who endured our cross, our shame, our curse, so that now there is no shame and there is no curse but there is just the warm welcome of heaven 
that says of every Christian believer as we take our final breath in our long-distance journey of faith, here he comes, here she comes. I'm so glad to welcome you at last. Lord, may that be the story of our journey. May we fix our eyes on Jesus for his name's sake. Amen.